Tunnels in Fort Lauderdale, and a new way of looking at Cuban history. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Fort Lauderdale has taken the next step in possibly building an Elon Musk tunnel under Los Olas to the beach. It's an effort to alleviate traffic. We'll learn about the same tunnel already built in Las Vegas and ask, will that really work here? Also, many writers have told the story of Cuba in history books, but Ada Ferrer took it a step further and tried to show the relationship between the U.S. and Cuba in her Pulitzer-winning book, which is our Sundial Book Club pick for June. But first, we're going to meet a South Florida teacher about to go to Poland, where he's going to help teach Polish and Ukrainian refugee students. All of that today on Sundial, after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. Many teachers often look for something to do during the summer, and some of them will tutor. Others will take a second, maybe even third job. Some go abroad to participate in programs that teach English to students in other parts of the world. Well, that's a journey that Broward County teacher Jim Gard is about to make after more than 40 years in the classroom. He's going into Eastern Europe, where he's going to be working with Ukrainian refugees. The program he signed up for is put on by the Eagle Orzel Educational and Cultural Exchange, Inc., which is a nonprofit founded by two Polish-American educators. It facilitates educational and cultural exchanges between the United States and Poland. However, as you may know, wars broke out in Ukraine next door, and that's happened since Jim initially applied for the program. So Mr. Gard is preparing to depart tomorrow for Warsaw, where he's not only teaching Polish students, as we mentioned, now Ukrainian refugee students who also need a teacher. Jim joins us now. It's great to have you, Jim. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much, too. I know that you're heading out on this trip tomorrow. Um, how has the outbreak of war changed your plans for the summer, or has it? Um, well, back in November, I first... Uh, applied, was accepted, and then all of a sudden the war breaks out. We weren't sure if we were going to go. Then on about April, they said, well, you're accepted. Uh, do you still want to go? And I said, sure. And they said, well, there might be uh, Ukrainian refugees there as well. I said, okay, uh, that's fine. So it really hasn't changed anything. I guess one thing I did was I had my students um, uh, at Mono High School uh, fill out little cards. They're like, they have inspirational sayings on them. And about 100 kids participated in that. So I'll bring that over for the kids. And uh, it just changes things, I guess, that way. Matter of fact, this morning, I just picked up another student uh, who is a uh, Ukrainian refugee also living with one of the kids. What was going through your mind when the war broke out as it was happening? Um, Initially, it was like, "Uh oh, I guess this is going to be canceled. Um, And then it was like, holy cow. First, like, why is this happening? Uh, to this very non-aggressive country. Um, and then as things got you know worse and worse, I, I really didn't know what to think. I mean, really, uh, just hoping things are okay for the folks over there, and obviously they're not. How did you hear about the Ukrainian refugee children uh, who now, are, you know, I mean, they, they're out of their country. They have nothing. They have no, no school, no teachers. And they would be joining this program. How'd you, how'd you learn about them? Well, when I got the initial go, 
they said, okay, we're going to have uh, our kids from Poland, naturally. Just It's an art walk. It's kind of south and east of Warsaw. So picture going south and a little bit more towards the Ukraine. Um, and uh, they said there will probably be some Polish, you know, or some Ukrainian refugees there as well. So I said, okay, uh, that's that's fine. I mean, for me, completing 41 years teaching, uh, the more kids, the better. <laughs> and I mean, first of all, you know, congrats, 41 years uh, in the classroom. <laughs> that No, that is amazing. I wanted to know what, what was um, the motivation for you before the war, even putting that aside, but what was the motivation for you in doing this and wanting to go abroad? Um, I travel abroad almost every year, maybe like 25 or so different countries. And a couple of years ago, I was in Poland and a friend of mine from little town, Mount Carmel, Pennsylvania, um, we happened to meet him over there in Poland of all places. And he said, Hey, I'm teaching, I'm, I'm doing this in my retirement. Would you be interested? I said, sure. So the following year, I didn't bother to apply that. Of course you have the pandemic. And then this year, September came around. They said, if you're interested. So I said, sure. So it was basically from a friend, you know, who I've known or our family has known for like 50 years because Mount Carmel is very small, like 6,000 people. Hmm. So here I am. Do you do you speak any Polish or any uh, Ukrainian for that matter? Uh, let's see. I know uh, Piva. Um, <laughs> that's beer. <laughs> Um, I know, uh, Jen Dobre is good morning. Jen Koya, goodbye. Uh, I'm sorry, Jen Koya, thank you. Dobre Zenia is goodbye. Pierogi, that's about it. Okay. <laughs> you know, food and beer. That's all right. That, that, that yeah. should help you. Well, here's the, I mean, the interesting thing is, is that you're going over there to teach English. You're a math teacher. So is that, I mean, is that, what's the challenge there? Um, gee, to say out of my element would be an understatement. It's not just English, but they were saying, well, we would like you to do it through making up skits. And I said, okay, there aren't many math skits around. So now what do I do? <laughs> um, and so since they're doing sports there, uh, I've coached all kinds of stuff over 40 years. Uh, they're doing baseball. I'm actually helping with baseball, football, uh, and golf. I said, oh, baseball. So I'm going to have them learn and do the skit, who's on first, which should be hilarious. Um, and then uh, Casey at bat, which should be good. And then a Monty Python skit with their, their argument skit, which should be hilarious. Because these are high school kids. Their age is like 12 to 16. So, and then uh, my students came up with a skit to uh, teach the kids uh, American slang, which will probably be the best one out of all of them. And it, you know what I mean? Because again, you have some, you have Polish children, but you also have Ukrainian children. Does that add an extra layer of challenge or is it do you think that the what you're going to do should work across the board? Um, man, I hope so. You know what, though, <laughs> teaching in <laughs> teaching in South Florida. I mean, I've had classes where I've had like 35 kids from 10 or 12 countries with, you know, 10 or 12 different languages. So this is not unusual, although math is a lot easier because it's numbers. Mm -hmm. Um so and this these these kids are different language levels everything from you know maybe no english or a bit of english to being okay which is pretty much what i get anyway in the classroom down here so this is not going to be much of a change with the exception of being completely out of my element <laughs> mm. you know thinking about the, the skits that you're going to do I, I mean i this is my naivete do they know 
like some of the history of those skits? Like, I mean, like, come on, who's on first? It is a classic here, but do they know that? Do they know about that one? I'm going to assume no. Okay. So I actually have like a baseball diamond printed out, which they can do. I'm going to, of course, go on, you know, the, the internet and they can see the actual original Abbott and Costello skit. Um, they should be hopefully completely and totally confused. So pretty much like a lot of my math classes when I first start out. Um, but we'll get through it. Oh, <laughs> uh, that even all these years later, that's still a classic skit. As you said, the Abbott and Costello one. I'm speaking with Jim Gard. He's a Broward County math teacher from Monarch High School in Coconut Creek, and he's leaving tomorrow for a summer program that he's taking on this new meaning, this mission. He's going to Warsaw, Poland, and he's going to spend the summer teaching Polish and Ukrainian, now Ukrainian refugee students, the how to refine their English skills. You can find out more about this journey and about the program through our social media, WLRN Sundial. Um, go back to what you said a second ago too, Jim. You, that you have some, you had some of your students write things to the students you're going to be working with. What were they? What, what kind of stuff were they writing? Oh gosh, um, like little po- little stuff. postcards, little post- yeah. Okay, basically postcards, and then these little three by three things I got online that have inspirational sayings on the front, but then on the back I said, hey, if you guys can write some stuff, so they were writing stuff like it's okay to be afraid, you'll get through this. Uh, a lot of kids put on their Instagrams. So you're going to have, you know, we had pen pals. Now it's Instas. Mm. Um, they had uh, drawings. I mean, just a lot. It's just unbelievable. Some of the stuff that the kids wrote, but you know, these are our kids today. I mean, they're, they're, they're really with it and uh, they're impressive. Oh, you don't have to tell me. I know I, I, every time I meet one. Uh, extremely impressed. What are you looking forward to most personally for you in this journey? Um, well, I mean, just basically traveling over to Poland again, which I, I love the country um, and uh, working with kids. I mean, I just love working with high school age kids. Like I said, I've been doing it two thirds of my life. <laughs> so, oh, you know, it's, it's, that's, that's the bottom line. And, you know, uh, it'll be a lot of fun. Now, you're not retiring yet, are you, or did you? No, not yet. Uh, I'm 62. I may go another couple of years. I mean, you know, I can retire any day, but I mean, every day I go in the classroom, I have a good time. Well, no, because I'm wondering, like, so when you come back for the the fall, what do you hope to bring back from this experience that you want to share with with, uh, your new students? Well, um, one thing I'm bringing back is other cards that have yet to be filled out and I'll have the kids there fill them out Mm. for our kids. And I'll bring those back and make a poster out of them, put it in my classroom. Um, I'll have a load of pictures. I'll probably make a slideshow presentation. Um, I always do every year whenever I travel anyway. And, uh, you know, a lot of kids who filled out this stuff, they really want to hear from hopefully their newfound friends halfway across the planet. This sounds like it, it, it's going to be an incredible experience and there'll be some fun in it, but I think also eye-opening for you. And also I think that it's great that, that students here are connecting with the students there the way they do. I think that is so cool. Uh, I didn't even think about that, but that, that's one of the good things from technology, right? Is It gives us a connectivity that we didn't have. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, these like I said, these kids are will be very well connected and uh, it'll be fun uh, for the kids to learn. Some English, uh, like I said, the American slang from our kids. I know that that's, <laughs> that's 
That's going to be a biggie. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Jim, it's such a pleasure. I know you got to get prepared, so finish your packing. Safe travels, my friend. Have a wonderful time, and looking forward to talking to you when you get back. Okay, thanks again. You take care now. All right. Again, that is Jim Gard, Broward County math teacher from Monarch High School in Coconut Creek. By the way, some of you might recognize him. He was on the show before. He was on our last teacher panel. Jim, have safe, safe travels. Well, still to come, Fort Lauderdale's mayor thinks a tunnel will help alleviate traffic. We're going to look at a similar tunnel already built in Las Vegas. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. Fort Lauderdale is moving forward in the next phase of possibly building a tunnel from Los Olos Boulevard to the beach. It's a tunnel built by the Boring Company, owned by Elon Musk. There's a similar tunnel already built in Las Vegas, and some of the South Florida mayors, like Dean Trantalis, went to see it. First, you're going to hear a conversation we had with Mick Akers. He's a transportation reporter for the Las Vegas Review-Journal. We wanted to get an idea of how the tunnel there works and whether it's actually doing what Mr. Musk has promised. From there, we're going to then jump to Fort Lauderdale Mayor Dean Trantalis, and we asked him what he thinks about this idea and if it's good for his city. There is a boring tunnel in Las Vegas right now, and, and they do want to build more. Briefly, just tell us where does this tunnel run? How much does it cover? And what's the big deal? Yeah, so, you know, there's grand plans, but right now the the only operating piece of it is uh, less than a mile track. It's, uh, it connects three convention spaces at the Las Vegas Convention Center. Uh, they just went under a pretty massive renovation project adding the West Hall. So uh, with that, they put this boring company system underneath, uh, you know, each of those stations there. So there's three of them. The central one's the main one. It's underground. It's the ground one that you see all the pictures of with the neon lights and the LED screens and all that. Uh, then they got two above ground ones. Uh, so, you know, it's, you know, kind of just shuffles back and forth. Uh, conventioners, you know, just at the Las Vegas Convention Center, you know, I covered so- tons of conventions there and in, in any given day there, I've walked over 20 miles. So this obviously saves people you know, a lot of issues from walking back and forth, especially with the new uh, West Hall there. But, you know, right now it's free. So far, no complaints. It's, I guess there have been over 700,000 people that have written it so far. Um, it opened last year, obviously, with the pandemic. They, you know, scaled back the opening day. It was supposed to open in 2020. So, uh, you know, so far, so good, it seems like over there. They want to build, what is it, almost 30 miles of tunnels, like from, what is it, across the Strip and to downtown? Yeah, so what it would be, it'd be about 15 miles each way. So it's going to be a dual tunnel system like it is at the convention center. So it'd be 30, about 30 in total, about 55 stops along the way. And last week, the city of Las Vegas approved the downtown portion, which, you know, smaller, about five miles each way. So it's like 10 miles of dual track there. Uh, that's going to have five stations to start with. So um, it looks like right now the, the main uh, Las Vegas strip portion is going to be the first that actually happen uh, aside from the convention center. They're going to do that in phases. So they, they got some of these different portions are going to be building, you know, in sections and they're not initially going to be connected all the way through. So they're going to do these little loops and then eventually they're going to connect them, you know, each way down the line. But that's what they say. Hey, this is you can kind of build this out in you know, portions because you can go back and connect it later on and you add the stations along the way. Uh, each station can cost between one point five million and twenty million. If you go underground like the grand one at the Las Vegas Convention Center, those ones cost a lot more. 
But once you go above ground, you know, you don't have all the lights and the glitz and glamour. It costs a little less. And how, how long is it going to take for them to get at least most of this done? Sometime next year in 2023. So they said, hey, once we get underground, we start boring the tunnels out. We can go pretty quickly. The, the longest, you know, construction parts of this are going to be each station along the way. Each resort's going to be responsible for paying for their own stations. Boring company's going to pay for all the digging and all the underground work and all that. And they're going to operate it and take the revenue, which they'll pay the city of Las Vegas and Clark County on a quarterly basis, just depending on how much they make each quarter. Um, so, you know, they're, they're going to be operating it. They said, hey, it's going to be the cost between, say, an Uber ride and a, and a bus ride. So, you know, not too expensive. Uh, it's point to point. So unlike the Las Vegas monorail, which we have operating above ground right now, where you have to stop at each resort along the way, this one you can get on the, at the convention center and say, hey, I want to go to Legion Stadium. You can go right there without having to stop. So that, you know, kind of cuts down to some of the, the time. All right. So we've seen the pictures. We've seen videos. You posted a video up on your social media. Give me a brief uh, rundown of how this works. So let's say... Uh, you know, I want to get in on one side, obviously. Right now, it's only at the convention center, but I have to go how far down underground, and then what happens? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's about 15 or 20 feet underground. Uh, but, you know, like I said, you can catch it above ground, and you go underneath. It's like a little ramp. They go underneath these tunnels. They have LED lights, so, you know, it kind of sets, you know, like a cool mood. It's like, hey, we're in Las Vegas. You don't want to just be some, you know, boring lit tunnel. Obviously, they added a little, you know, a little entertainment value to it as well. You hop in, or right now it's, you know, the, the, the full length of it right now is less, less than a mile. So obviously you're not going to be reaching, you know, crazy speeds. Right now it's between 30 and 40 miles per hour. Um, so you get in, you know, they drive you underneath the tunnel and you get there. And this is fully dependent on riders getting in and out. That's, a, you know, the timing of this. Because sometimes, you know, with the, the larger conventions like CES, um, some of the videos that came out of that, you saw some like traffic backups. We were like, oh, the, the tunnel has a traffic backup, obviously. So this is dependent on how long it takes each person to get out and then, you know, the next people to get in there, you know, that right now there's that wow factor. People are like taking their selfies and the photos and such. So, you know, it's kind of holding up the process a little bit. And then that will initially happen as well once it goes underground and on the strip. But, you know, so once this kind of gets, you know, their footing and they have it down a little bit better, you know, that those so-called traffic backups back there, you know, those won't happen. I was in the car during CES where, you know, we're kind of just, going slowly behind a few of them it didn't take more than about 15 to 20 seconds to actually get through it and get out so uh you know it's just one of those things on social media that you see it happen and people just kind of make a bigger deal than it is just out of curiosity just something that popped up in my head is um the actual construction of it, it obviously since most of it is underground i would imagine that doesn't cause any problems above ground like i mean you know whenever you have construction sometimes you have to you know, divert traffic and, and, and it could even hurt some businesses. But is that the case with this? How, how does that work? Yeah, not at all, actually. That's one of the, you know, big pluses they mentioned. Uh, there's tons of road work going on in Las Vegas and every nook and cranny. So everyone just jokes about the state flower is the is a construction cone here. So um, with with that in mind, this is all underground. So once the the boring machine the new one's called proof rock it, it can start above ground and dig in underground itself the when they did the, the the convention center portion they had to actually drill the hole first and then get the machine in because it was the older machine uh this new one can go in by itself uh it's it's quicker as far as the digging process uh so once they're underground they're underground and they do their thing um you're not going to know anything's going on when you're 
driving above it unless you you know you're keeping abreast of the situation and all that so yeah that is a major plus there is you know no impacts to the, the traffic above obviously las vegas boulevard is busy as it is already so that's going to be a, a, a huge factor in this you know no impacts above ground all right so you know just overall granted again you just have this one little small piece right now but the promise of more how do the people of Las Vegas feel? I mean, you just said some of the casinos are excited, but overall, is it doing what they promised? Is it really making life better? So at this point, obviously, it's the convention center. Um, that's, you know, if unless uh, locals go into one of these conventions, which, uh, you know, it's a, it's a small fraction of locals that actually go there. Uh, so they're not really seeing the benefit just yet. Uh, they, you know, they, they said, hey, at the convention center, we can do 4,400 people an hour. And so people were kind of down that they did their stress tests with the independent contractor and they passed it. So obviously, uh, although you saw the traffic backer videos and all that, you know, they're, they're meeting their capacity. Uh, but, you know, once it goes underground in the strip, I think, you know, you'll see some more locals, you know, hopping on and checking that out. And then, you know, if that proves successful, there is some anticipation about this, you know, actually branching out to this, you know, uh, community here in Las Vegas. We've been talking with Mick Akers, transportation reporter for the Las Vegas Review-Journal. We're talking about the Tesla tunnels that Elon Musk's company, the Boring Company, has built in Las Vegas, and they're going to be building more. He plans on building similar tunnels in possibly Fort Lauderdale to alleviate traffic on Las Olas and to the beach. We're joined now by Fort Lauderdale Mayor Dean Trantalis. Let's just begin with the latest um, which is that the city has approved the money for the boring company to investigate the, the cost of building this tunnel. Is that what the $375,000 was for? The city commission approved an, an interim agreement uh, allocating up to $375,000 uh, to have the boring company continue its research into the underground geology as well as to come up with the, the cost of what this project would would ultimately uh, require. So it's not just cost, but also continuing the uh, the analysis of the underground um, the underground techniques that'll be needed in order to to build this tunnel. Tell me what you envision, what this will look like here in Fort Lauderdale. We are continually uh, trying to analyze how we get people from who come to visit us from the western suburbs and from other parts of our city over to the beach. We've had so many working groups with neighbors and stakeholders and, and city officials over the many, many years trying to come up with ways to rework Las Olas Boulevard. And, and in the end, we've come up with very, very uh, important results, but never meaningful enough to find ways to minimize the amount of vehicular traffic that travels that, that artery that goes from the center of town all the way to the beach. So when we, we heard about the opportunity, of, of seeing what uh, the Boring Company was able to create. We visited Las Vegas. We also visited their test tunnel in Hawthorne, California. We came back with an idea to uh, begin a tunnel in our downtown, whether it be from the Brightline Station or uh, now we're talking about possibly the Esplanade Park, which is right in front of the Performing Arts Center, and just going right all the way under Boulevard all the way to the Las Olas Oceanside Park, that new park we created, and having minimal impact on either end because the tunnels are only 12 feet in diameter, and whisking people from one end of the city to the next, avoiding all the traffic, all the interruptions, all the lights, everything above ground, and having a, a, a 
sort of a 21st century uh, approach to trying to deal with the uh, traffic solutions that we've been challenged with for so many years. So if I, if I could, because you, uh, as you said, you got to see how the tunnel operates in Las Vegas, as you pointed out, as you said, and we already heard from the reporter in Las Vegas, this one is just covering the convention center. It's just a mile. They will be expanding to cover most of the Las Vegas Strip and downtown. But the mayor in in Las Vegas did have a lot of questions and concerns. There have to be, you have to ask those questions as well. And I wondered, what are the questions you've been asking of Boring? What are your concerns? What, what are the things that we need to be looking out for? Well, the first thing I point out to people whenever the issue of a tunnel comes up is to say to people, we already have a tunnel in Fort Lauderdale. We've been here for over 60 years, so we know what it's like to build a tunnel. And the people say, well, what about the high water table? The water is going to interfere with you. Well, Las Vegas also has a high water table, even though it's in the middle of the desert. Then they say, well, the, 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 the rock formations in Las Vegas are different than the rock formations they are here. Of course they are. We have a different uh, geology here. But we've already built tunnels here. We built a tunnel here in Fort Lauderdale. There's a tunnel in Miami. We're, we're very uh, much aware of the type of rock formations there are and how to address and mitigate the, uh, the necessary uh, structures that are going to be important to keep this uh, tunnel uh, uh, sustainable. So, but those are the questions we, do, we asked already up front. How do we dig it? Where does it go? Whose approvals do we need? What government agencies do we need to, to participate and partner with us? So those are questions that, that we've been asking for about a year and a half now. We've resolved a number of them. Uh, luckily, Los Olas Boulevard is a city road. Obviously, we're going to have to interact and interface with utility companies and so forth. The Army Corps of Engineers will have to be partnering with us because we're going to go be going under the Intercoastal Waterway. That's what the, that's what the interim agreement is all about. And trying to address those issues. You know, I'm, I want to play a cut from again the interview that I just had with the reporter there. And and again, because it's still so new. I wanted to know how the people of Las Vegas feel about it, but here's what he had to say, and I want your response. This is Mr. Akers. So at this point, obviously, it's the convention center. Um, that's, you know, if unless uh, locals go into one of these conventions, which, uh, you know, it's a, it's a small fraction of locals that actually go there. Uh, so they're not really seeing the benefit just yet. Uh, they, you know, they, they said, hey, at the convention center, we can do 4,400 people an hour. And so people were kind of doubting that. They did their stress tests with the independent contractor and they passed it. So obviously, uh, although you saw the traffic backer videos and all that, you know, they're, they're meeting their capacity. Uh, but, you know, once it goes underground in the strip, I think, you know, you'll see some more locals, you know, hopping on and checking that out. And then, you know, if that proves successful, there is longer term plans to actually branch this out into the Las Vegas community. All right. So basically, again, this is just being used by visitors at the convention center. Um, why not wait, Mayor, until they have finished at least this bigger portion of 30 miles and then see what the data tells us? Because after a couple of years, you could see if it really does work. Because it does work. I know folks that have been to conventions in Las Vegas uh, within this past year who have taken the tunnels. We loved it. It was a great experience. We need to have it here in Fort Lauderdale. So it's already in operation. So it's so we didn't we didn't just jump into this with all fours, not thinking that uh, we needed to see how how it would impact the community and how the results would would occur in Las Vegas. We've seen the results. People have come back from Las Vegas. 
it told us their experience. It, it reflected our, our own experience. The solution that this city has been needing for so many years, you know, Fort Lauderdale is a beautiful town, but the roads are narrow in many places, especially the more popular uh, pathways to get from one point to another. You can only widen roads so much and the, the cars continue to increase in number. We've got to find alternative solutions that make sense. Let me just finish with this money. Uh, is this going to be a situation like in Las Vegas where uh, you have the company, the boring company, basically, you know, getting an exclusive contract to run it? The city will pay them to run it, um, you know, and, and they'll cover the cost. How is this going to work? We haven't gotten there yet. Uh, that's what these analyses are for. We're going to look at our options. Uh, we've been talking with the state. The state is also interested in seeing the boring company make investments in our in our uh, communities and uh, we're going to see how the numbers work and, and who's going to operate it and uh, how the money is going to be uh, allocated but in the end we believe this will be a cost savings for everybody in the community because the cost of this tunnel would be cheaper believe it or not than trying to widen roadways or rework roadways or to build any other alternative means of transportation that's been suggested and we believe that this is a winner for South Florida. So you just heard from Fort Lauderdale Mayor Dean Trantalis. Before that, we heard from Mick Akers. He's a transportation reporter for the Las Vegas Review-Journal. And we want to hear from you. What do you think? Anywhere in South Florida, from Palm Beach County down to Miami-Dade, you think these tunnels are a good idea? And if you've never seen one, we'll share a video from the Las Vegas Tunnel on our social media, WLRN Sundial. And by the way, one of the ways you can reach us is just join our Sundial Text Club. That's the best way to reach us, actually. Just type the word join to 786-677-0767. Again, that's 786-677-0767. Can't wait to hear what you got to say about those tunnels. Well, still to come, this month's Sundial Book Club pick, it's all about the intense intertwined history between the U.S. and Cuba. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. The U.S. and Cuba have always had a close and at times intense relationship. That history goes all the way back to the American Revolution. Did you know that some of the founding fathers hoped that Cuba would one day become part of the U.S.? We're learning about the history for this month's Sundial Book Club. We're reading the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Cuba, an American History by Ada Ferrer. It explores the island's history from its indigenous population to its relationship with the U.S. today. You'll hear about the usual historical figures, of course, like Christopher Columbus, Jose Marti, Fidel Castro. But the book is also focused on people whose names you don't know. They, they lived through this history, but their names didn't survive historical records. Here's our conversation with Ada. Tell me about your childhood growing up. You know, it, how much was the topic of Cuba spoken in the house? It was spoken all the time. You know, my mother, well, my mother left a son behind uh, when she took me. So there was always the, the question of my brother and wanting to bring him to be with us. My mother left her mother and her, and you know, all her siblings in the beginning. And so there was always, and then my father, you know, my father was one of six and three of his stayed behind. So there was always, you know, absent family, writing letters, sending packages, Every Saturday or Sunday, we wrote to my my grandmother and my brother, 
uh, everyone where I was living was, or almost everyone was Cuban. So they were always, you know, the, the procession to the Caridad de Cobre every year and the priest praying for political prisoners every Sunday and anti-Castro graffiti on the building. So it was, it was very present in general. And then my mother also worked to make a present. So she used to do things like I remember one day when I was about 12, she sat down with us and made a recording. And the recording was of uh, patriotic poems that she remembered that she learned in school, the favorite songs of multiple family members, and the chants of street vendors in her hometown. Of the, of the... Like a natural born historian, you know? Mm. I think about conversations I've had with Cubans and when you think about life back in Cuba before Castro and what they talk about at the dinner table, what they talk about at parties, et cetera. For you, what I really was curious about was not only how you were raised thinking about Cuba, but then when you went into your education and, you know, the work that you did academically, how did all of that, you know, all of those stories and maybe even arguments, you know, at the dinner table. How did that shape the way you viewed Cuba when you started to, again, approach it academically? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, I think even before I started approaching Cuba academically, I was already beginning to form academic questions about it, you know, because uh, there's this, this sense of, in American academia or on the American left is the, the Cuban revolution as this uh, great project of the, of the left. And I grew up in a community that was mostly working class, uh, not educated, and you know, they condemned Castro and the revolution. So to me, it didn't, it didn't quite fit. I remember when I went to college, I went to uh, a meeting of a, like a peace, a peace group, you know? And when they found out I was from Cuba, they just, you know, started saying all these things about all, you know, these wealthy Cubans who left. And, um, you know, and I keep thinking that's weird because almost every Cuban I know is not wealthy. And yet they were all these, you know, white wealthy elite college students. So there was always this kind of disconnect between what I read and what I experienced. So. So I think partly I began my study from that position, you know, from that observation. And then when I started studying Cuban history, that was in graduate school, part of what I always noticed is that I would read histories of the Cuban revolution and I felt like I didn't recognize my parents in it. Like I didn't see a place for them in that history. So I was interested to write a story in which different kinds of, of Cubans and Americans could see themselves reflected. This is not the only thing you've written about Cuba, but uh, when you were putting this together, what was your approach? What did you, you know, how did you want to approach the story? Because you go back, you, we start, you know, with Columbus. We start in the 15th century. We go way, way back. You know, I teach a course that's called Cuba History and Revolution, in which I, in which I do the same thing. And so part of me wanted that, that, that long sweep of history, this kind of epic narrative history that it, it that project appealed to me as as a writer and and as a historian but i would say the way i approached it was that even though i wanted to do that i did not want the book to read like a textbook so what i tried to do was to write 
really short chapters that could keep the reader engaged. And then when they finish the short chapter, they could take a rest. And then they had the incentive to start the next one because they liked the one before. And I tried to include different kinds of characters in, in the history. So obviously familiar figures like Columbus and Castro and people like that. But the book is full of people that characters that readers will have never heard of and characters sometimes that I don't even have names for because the names didn't survive in the historical record, right? So um, to give you just, a, you know, an example, like we know that in the 19th century, there were all these illegal slaving ships that arrived on the, on Cubans, on the Cuban coast. And sometimes they arrived on this coral rock and the captives on the boats had to be marched on this coral rock that was called dog's teeth. And so I imagine that, you know, I imagine them, you know, walking barefoot on those stones and, and cutting their feet, right? That's part of the history of Cuba, even though we don't always have the names of the people who did that. So, so that's what I try to do in the book, just make it more, more human, have more characters. I wanted readers to be able to try to imagine history from different, from many different perspectives. Going back to how you started with Columbus, remind us of what Cuba was when he arrived and, and the role he played. Yeah, well, when he first landed in Cuba, he called it, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but the beautiful land that human eyes had ever seen. And he, you know, it was almost like this whimsical telling of a place with, uh, with beautiful hills and with dogs that never barked and aromatic fruits and trees, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a very kind of romantic picture of Cuba. Uh, what he found was indigenous people. They were later uh, called Tainos. Those were the ones who were in Eastern Cuba where he landed. And those were the ones that bore the brunt of Spanish conquest. And so what he found was, you know, an, an indig indigenous communities that sometimes ran from the Spanish, sometimes um, fought the Spanish, um, and that in the end um, suffered enormous uh, damage from, from Columbus's landing and from what followed, right, which was Spanish colonialism. I'm speaking with Ada Ferrer. She is the author of this month's Sundown Book Club pick, the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Cuba in American History. It explores the island's history from its indigenous population to its relationship with the U.S. today and how all of that culminated into Cuba's identity. You can join our book club by searching Sundial Book Club on Facebook. You know, going through this book, it, it got me thinking about how the United States has history with every country in the Western Hemisphere. It's had its hands in those histories. And, of course, obviously in Cuba. But then it got me thinking about what that relationship between the U.S. and Cuba are. I get this is what the book is really about, is looking at that relationship. How would you describe, let's, let's go back to the beginning of this country, the United States, you know, in the 18th century. Since then, how do you describe that relationship? In terms of Cuba and, and the U.S., the connection, I mean, it's a, it's a very close or historically a close, intimate relationship that was never one between equals, I would say. So um, if we go back to the period of the American Revolution, we had people in Cuba who were uh, contributing to the cause of American independence. 
after the US became independent, Cuba was always in the first decades of the 20th of the 19th century, excuse me, uh, Cuba was always in the top three of US trading partners. So again, an economic relationship that was intense and close, and I think closer than many Americans realize today. And the other thing in the 19th century, which is hugely important, is that American leaders always imagined that Cuba would one day become part of the United States. So Jefferson said it, uh, going back to the 1780s and uh, almost to the time of his death, you know, people like John Adams, James uh, Madison, uh, Monroe, they all imagined that Cuba would become American and that that would, they said it would, it would fill out the measure of our political well-being. They thought that acquiring Cuba was indispensable, which again, like Americans hear that now and it seems surprising, like why was Cuba so important? Right. But if you look, if, you know, partly geography is destiny. If you look at a map and you see where Cuba sits right at this, this prime spot, you know, at the, you know, at the, at the meeting of the Caribbean Sea and the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico, Havana on Cuba's North coast is near the, co the port of New Orleans, which is where all the, agricultural products, you know, cultivated in the Mississippi River Valley would 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 leave the US and then go either to North America or to Europe, right? So if you look at how close they are, whoever controlled Cuba had the potential to cripple American commerce. So that was why American statesmen were so interested in it in, it in the beginning. And then it changed and it became about slavery, but that's a little bit later. Um, when the US aids Cuba, if they consider it aid, you know, when defeating this, defeating Spain, how did, how does Cuba view that? How does Cuba view, you know, that, that small era where Cuba was able to then break its chains from, from Spain? Yeah. Well, generally, I mean, that, I focus on that quite a bit in the book because it's a critical moment, right? You have, um, you have Cubans struggling for their independence beginning in 1868. They launched three wars against Spain. So it's a long process that takes place over 30 years. Um, the U.S. intervenes at the end of the Third War in 1898, right? And when the U.S. intervenes, the Cubans, the Cuban rebel army, the independence army, the, its leaders are fairly confident that, that victory is within reach. And the famous general Maximo Gomez said, we're going to win this year. It was the first time he, he said that with any certainty. That was that was, you know, a, a pretty accepted uh, analysis. And even the Americans said that the, the Cubans are strong and the Spanish are getting weaker and weaker. But the Americans intervened because the, you know, the Maine, the, the ship, the Maine blew up in Havana Harbor and the U.S. declared war on Spain and entered the, uh, you know, intervened in the war and then and then defeated Spain um, in August of 1898. And that war became called the Spanish-American War. So that title doesn't even have a place for Cuba in it, right? And so Americans think of that war as this war between the US and Spain without realizing that it's really just the final phase of Cuba's long struggle for independence. So in terms of how, Cu how Cubans tend to see it, they see it very differently than Americans do. So the US tended to, you know, has tended to see that moment as one of the US coming in and assisting in Cuban independence. And sometimes the Americans say that the US won independence for Cuba, whereas Cubans tend to see it more as the Americans kind of coming in and almost stealing Cuban independence, right? There's a famous book written in 1950 in Havana 
the title of which was Cuba does not owe its independence to the United States. And that's a fairly common view. So it's like shared history that's seen in radically different ways in the two countries. So between that and Castro, what were the Americans doing that really kind of, I think, you know, gave Castro a lot of, of fuel to, yeah. to his ideas? Right. So when you have Castro um, and others, because Castro was not the only revolutionary fighting against Batista, but when he comes to power, I would say that the majority of Cuban people at that point were less interested in the relationship with the U.S. than in internal Cuban issues. So getting rid of, of Batista, who was there illegally, um, ending government corruption. There was a lot of support for an agrarian reform, which had been a, a, a common demand in Cuban politics going back decades and decades and was part of the 1940 constitution, right? So all those things, I think, were more important in, the, in, in leading up to the, uh, the revolution and Castro's uh, assumption of power and in the early months. But what happens is all this unfolds in the middle of the Cold War and the Americans insist on viewing the Cuban revolution in that frame. And, and they start doing things that seem to challenge Cuba's ability to decide things for themselves, right? And when they do that, it just opens the door for Fidel Castro to invoke this patriotic nationalist sentiment. Uh, and you know, I think that that is what, you know, what provides a lot of the support for Castro in the early uh, encounters and confrontations with the United States. You know, when the U.S. invades the, the Bay of Pigs, or even before that, there was a ship that exploded in Havana Harbor, the, the Pube, and Castro blames the U.S. And at that point, even people who were already criticizing Castro and worried about communism, in that moment, they rallied behind Castro because they thought it was the, you know, the Americans uh, acting against, um, against the, the Cuban government. You know, you think about uh, this book was published in a very timely moment of Cuba's history. I mean, you talk about months after these historic protests that happened in December of 2021, led by artists and intellectuals, many of them Afro-Cuban We've taken a look back at this history and, you know, we look now at this moment. What do you think? What do you foresee? What are your hopes, perhaps, for Cuba yeah. moving forward? And, and, right. also well, the, yeah. and also the fact that there's no Castro in charge. Right. So, I mean, there's so many, there's so many ways to answer that question. One thing is that I finished the book before the protests and it was already in, being printed. So, so the protests don't... Um, the protests of July of last summer um, don't don't appear in them, though the 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 protests of the November before do. Um, so I think there is, you know, I think it's really important to remember that the Cuban population is is young, and about a third of the population was born after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, which was an event that you know that that created all kinds of economic and uh, 
uh, social havoc uh, in Cuba, right? It's, and so in some sense, a big proportion of the Cuban population has never lived in a country that was not in some form of economic crisis that, that you know, has, they've never lived in a country where you didn't need foreign currency to live, not luxuriously, but to live decently, you know? And so I think for young people, there is a sense of, you know, that they don't, they don't imagine how things will get better, uh, that there's no clear answer. I think many of them had hope during the Obama opening. I was there when Obama visited and people, you know, were telling me that on the street and I met all these young people who were starting small businesses, et cetera. Most of those businesses have shut down. Uh, and so, so basically the opening didn't go anywhere, right? And, and the pandemic happened and there's shortages and now it's summer and there's no electricity and no, they can't turn on fans. And so there's just this, this deep sense of, frustration and a, you know, and a sense of where they don't know uh, what could improve this. And so what you see is I'm sure, I mean, as I think everyone in Miami knows is I think what people are doing more and more is, is leaving. And so that's why you've had, you know, 120 or more thousand people, I think it's more now, show up at the U.S.-Mexico border, many of them young. There's a sense that they don't see it improving in Cuba. So the answer then is, is leaving Cuba. That was Ada Ferrer. She is the author of this month's Sundial Book Club pick, the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Cuba, in American History. And you can join our book club. Just search Sundial Book Club on Facebook. It's free. We'd love to have you. Tell us what you think of the book and also tell us what else you're reading. Obviously, next week we'll mention what we're going to be reading for the month of July. Well, that's Sundial for this Tuesday, June 21st. Katie Munoz is our lead producer. Leslie Ovalle is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our news director is Taryn Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. Jessica Bakeman is our senior news editor. WLRN's interim program director and technical supervisor is Peter J. Meritz. The theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Balo at GoBalo. Com. Don't forget, if you missed any of the program, you can listen to it again tonight in the rebroadcast at 8 or just download the podcast. And if you love to listen via podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, review. Would love that. Would appreciate it so much. There is no program tomorrow. It is a school board day for Miami-Dade County Public Schools. We will be back live with a new program on Thursday. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.